right, well, I've said it many times, but one of the things that I love about our service here is that there's a wide range of music, music that spans centuries. Some of the songs sang were hundreds of years old this morning. Some of them were songs that have been around for 20 years. Some of them are songs that have been around for 70 years. Some of them are songs that have been around since this year. So you think about how God is working through people. He's using music to point us to his truth, to get our eyes focused on the things that matter most, just like he uses his word to do that. The only thing that makes music useful is that it's a reflection of his truth and his word. Music in and of itself wouldn't accomplish that. It accomplishes that because the lyrics are tied to and connected to his word, his truth. That's the thing that can sanctify or set us apart. It can cleanse our mind. It can renew our mind, is the word of God. So often we wonder, why am I struggling so much in my Christian life? Why am I not growing Why is my mind not consumed with or directed by the things of faith as often as it ought to be? Why why not? And the reason is because we're not putting in enough nutritious calories. Oh, we're putting calories in, right? We're getting plenty of calories, just not, not enough of the right ones. That's what I love about gathering together having this opportunity to look into God's word, to sing songs about God's truth, to pray together corporately and talk to the God of the universe who loved us enough to reconcile us to himself and redeem us through the finished work of his son. Well, before we get going with our lesson this morning, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for your great love. Thank you that you are willing to stoop down in a sense and rescue us when we were your enemies, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, when we were hopeless apart from you. Thank you that you saw our need and you undertook to meet that need through the one finished sacrifice of your son. Pray that you would convince us once and for all that Christianity is not about what we need to keep doing for you. It's not about performance. It's about what you've done for us and what you want to do in and through our lives if we would just let your spirit have free reign to work and direct and lead and empower and enable. Pray that you would convince us that we had nothing to offer you if we're here this morning and we think that salvation is tied to earning your favor. If there's anyone here this morning that thinks that they're not guilty, that they didn't have a problem, that they didn't need rescue, that it was just all of the other people that were more despicable than them that needed rescue, but they themselves didn't need rescue either as a result of thinking that they were humanly good or that they were putting their focus and their confidence and their faith in their religion and the religious efforts and the re- religious rituals to save themselves, that today would be the day that they recognize your condemnation, your, your conclusion that all men regardless of who they are, fall short of your glory and need the rescue that you offered through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son as you paid the debt fully. You 
solved that problem that man had completely and you needed no help or assistance from us to either finish it or perfect it, but merely just to simply accept it as a free gift that is offered freely to those who would receive the life-giving salvation that you offer. Pray that those matters would be clear this morning as we look at a passage that's intended to bring us to that conclusion here in Romans chapter 2. Pray for those that are battling with hardships, those that are battling with physical issues or even the many people that are even dealing with cancer in our church right now, that you'd give them strength, that you'd give them comfort that you would remind them that the victory is already won, the battle is already won, that they can look forward to an eternity with you and that the time that we all have on earth, however long it might be, it's still a vapor that's here for a moment and then vanishes quickly away, that we have an eternity to look forward to with you. And we know that that's the thing that you've wanted us to be mindful of the whole time is that we'd want to be with you. We'd want to live life with you, that we would want to have a relationship with you and experience fellowship with you. Pray that that would be clear even this morning as well. Thank you for everyone who's here. Pray that you give me wisdom so that what is said would be accurate and clear. Pray that you would be lifted up and glorified by everything that is said and done here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is The Self-Righteous Are Guilty. The Self-Righteous Are Guilty. As I was thinking about this, remember last week we clearly looked at how the overtly immoral are guilty. Today we're going to touch on how the self-righteous are guilty. Next time we meet we'll touch on how the religious man, apart from faith in Christ, the religious man stands just as guilty as anyone else. And you could think of it even in terms of there being three lanes going down a road and you have an immoral lane, a self-righteous, or so most people call it the moral lane, and then you have a religious lane, but they're all on a road to destruction because the only way to be rescued is none of those things, but to have put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. That's why it says broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many there are on that road, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and why is that? Is that because there couldn't be many people on the road that leads to eternal life? No, it means that man can't wrap his mind around grace. It's, a, it's an inability to understand what, a free grace is, what free grace really is, what grace as a gift of God actually is about. That grace to be grace would have to involve God doing for man what man did not deserve. Man can't wrap their mind around that. Why? Because every facet of our lives is attached to this performance-driven mentality. This idea of, I must work really hard to be successful in my business, and the truth is, you must. I must study really hard to be successful at school, and the answer is, in most cases, you must. And if you know somebody that, that doesn't study but still is successful, you tend to grow some bitterness toward them, right? Oh, I hate that guy. <laughs> If you want to be successful on the sports teams, you're going to have to put in a lot of effort. It's a performance-driven world. And so naturally, when somebody exposes you to the message of grace that God is going to do for you, apart from any merit, apart from any deserve, anything being deserved on your part, apart from any effort on your part, God is going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself because he loves you so desperately. That's why we call that unfathomable grace or scandalous grace. We can't wrap our minds around that. That's why we come to that message of the gospel and many people reject it because they say, it can't be that simple. 
It just can't be that simple. Now the sad thing is, those who come to that point where they see that I can't offer God anything, I had a very real problem, I was marching towards an eternity apart from God in the lake of fire, I was hopeless, helpless, and hellbound, and until Jesus could rescue me through his work on the cross, that's the future that I was facing, but I saw that, I accepted the gift of eternal life through faith alone, in Christ alone, and by grace alone. I accepted that at a point in time, I became adopted into God's family. I was sealed by his spirit. I became his child. He said he would never let me go. Now I'm one of his. My identity is now in Christ. And you know what we do then? Then we take that performance-driven mindset and we attach it and apply it to trying to live the rest of our lives as God's children. Now instead of working to earn salvation, we turn it to language about we're working for God. And we have that mindset of I need to be working I need to be working. I need to be working for God. And God's saying, no, you need to be resting in me. You need to be enjoying me. You need to be experiencing intimacy with me. You need to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and living life in dependence on me. And when you do that as a byproduct of that posture of humility, that posture of dependence, then I can work in you. I can work through your life to produce through you the fruit that the Spirit of God can produce or would produce, which are the things that ultimately would benefit us and would please God. But as I was thinking about, I need to back up a little bit to this, this decision that man has to make, man has to make about are we going to respond to grace as it relates to the penalty that is owed for our sinfulness, and that's where Paul's at in this letter, there being these kind of three mentalities, the, the overtly immoral mentality, this self-righteous mentality, and then this religious mentality. But as we think about the self-righteous lane here this morning, it reminded me of this phrase, it's all relative. It's all relative. And it's a common phrase or saying that you often hear. And it means that something can be thought of or taken different or opposite ways depending on what one compares it to. We're talking about a point of reference. So it's all relative, meaning this success or this failure is only relative to whatever we're comparing it to. It may not seem like much of a success if we compare it to some things that are more successful. It might not seem like so much of a failure if we compare it to things that are a greater failure. And I hope you're tracking what I'm going through, what I'm trying to communicate there. So from a human perspective, perspective, the key to feeling good or feeling successful is directly tied to the standard to which you are comparing yourself or this point of reference. So whether people realize it or not, they are often doing this. Trying to find this sense of success, this sense of feeling good about yourself by comparing yourself to some standard. And the beauty of it is that you can always find a lower standard for comparison you can always find a lower standard. So you can always feel successful or good about yourself no matter who you are if you just dig deep enough to find someone who's even worse, something that's even worse, a set of circumstances that's even... Now all of a sudden I can feel good about where I'm at or successful with where I'm at or satisfied with where I'm at because I'm comparing it to a lower and lower and lower standard. Now an example that I was thinking of as I was talking about how can a person ever become self-righteous? You know, ask yourself that. How can I be, how, why is a person self-righteous? They have an inflated view of themselves because they're comparing themselves to the wrong standard. That's the answer. I was thinking of examples of that and I couldn't help, I'm in the midst of the ba- girls' basketball season, I couldn't help but thinking about girls' basketball. 
Even the junior high team that I coach looks really good when the standard of comparison is a really undeveloped team. Okay, some of you are here. I have some junior high girls' parents here. They look really good if they're playing against a bad enough team, right? And I'm not tearing them down. Of course, when we flip the script and they're playing a highly skilled team, they look different. It kind of reveals where they're really at in a sense. They're still developing. They aren't as good as the best teams. And the other thing it reveals is they need a better coach. (laughs) That's the truth, but, you know, beggars can't be choosy. So you think about self-righteousness, it involves this, the application of this tendency to morality or spirituality. So this tendency is to do what? Compare yourself to a low standard. Find a standard that you can compare yourself to that you eclipse in your own thinking, in your own mind, and then that makes you feel superior. We're talking about a false sense of moral superiority. That's the definition of being self-righteous. You become self-righteous when you take this tendency to always compare yourself to a low standard or or the wrong standard so that you can feel good about your own success. And so we have this mental attitude of this moral superiority as it relates to others that are perceived to be less righteous. Now the question is whether or not this is true. Is there such a thing as some that are morally superior to others? Is that even a thing? Are there some people less guilty than others? And by the reverse of that, are there some people more guilty than others? Do some people need God's rescue more than others? And are there some people that need God's rescue less than others? Are some people already righteous enough that they don't need God's righteousness? That's the questions that Paul's dealing with because there's a group of people that naturally will respond to a message of immorality and say, I'm not immoral, so I don't have the same kind of problem that those immoral people have. And Paul wants to deal with that because what are they instead? They're both immoral, just not admitting it, and they're self-righteous. They actually have a double whammy against them, and that's what he's gonna get into in this section here this morning. Now, I wanna do a little bit of a mini review for those of you who haven't been here. As we're thinking about the study of the book of Romans, we finished the first chapter, we're now starting the second chapter. We identify the general theme of the book as the gospel of salvation. We noted that the gospel message was said to reveal, in part, the righteousness of God. It's not completely revealed by the gospel, but the righteous demands or standards of God is revealed through the gospel message. Now, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul's letter explains the dilemma humanity faces as it relates to God's righteous standard and men's unrighteousness. So we can even see that if you want to flip back to... Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that's characterized by a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. Now, what he's gone on to do or what he's going to be doing through chapter 3, verse 20, is he's going to be explaining how this is a universal problem because all men, in fact, are lacking righteousness. That's the foreshadowing of what we're going through here. So last week we observed this universal, the universal nature of man's lack of righteousness and we looked at various illustrations of man's rejection of God as expressed through what? Overt immorality. So if we turn to the end of chapter one, 
we see this description of, of mankind. Now, when we went through this list, we, it started with homosexuality. It then moved into unrighteousness of all kinds, sexual immorality of all kinds, wickedness of all kinds, covetousness, maliciousness, those that were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. Then we got into some of the things that most people don't consider as they consider their own unrighteousness. Church people, I would say. Well, they're whisperers. They're backbiters. They're attacking people's reputation. They're haters of God. They're violent. Now, this is the kicker. They're proud. That's the very definition of being self-righteous, having this sense of moral superiority that's in fact unfounded. But they're proud. They're boasters, inventors of evil things. They're disobedient to parents. We were asking people to raise their hands as we went through this list. (laughs) Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying none of those things applied to me, this righteousness that is lacking, that's not, that's not an issue I have apparently because I don't do any of these things. Get over yourself. <laughs> Wait, wake up. You must still be asleep. At times, those are true of anybody, and that was the point. But verse 32 talks about the overt nature of this. And this isn't necessarily true of the self-righteous man. The self-righteous man is not necessarily overtly seeking these things. Is he guilty of, each in, of, of these things? Yes. Is he overtly seeking these things? The answer is no, but how does this chapter end? Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, mankind in general, they know the righteous judgment of God. It's been revealed to them, but they've exchanged God's truth for a lie we read earlier. They were suppressing the truth. We saw that. They know it, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, meaning condemnation, separation from God, eternal punishment. But no, though they know that, it says not only do they do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. We're talking about overt immorality here. So somebody listening to that could get to the place where they said, that's not me. I don't approve of those things. Maybe even get to the point of saying, I don't do those things and I don't approve of those things. What Paul says, he anticipates. Remember, this is a, a, a logically building argument. It, it's stepping forward. And he anticipates that there might be some that have that reaction. So that's how we get our context as we move into chapter 2. Therefore, let's read the first five verses that, Lord willing, we're still going to get through here, but we've got to move. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O oh man, whoever you are, who judge. Now, this is somebody looking back at this and saying, in effect, uh, that's not me. Now, for, what, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Now, catch this. For you who judge practice the same things. Is the Bible true or is it false? You practice the same things. Get over yourself. Be honest with yourself. Stop deceiving yourself. Verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things and how many people practice such things? All mankind. And do you think this, O man, you, who is this man again? The self-righteous man. You who judge those practicing such things and yet doing the same things. Do you think that you are going to escape the judgment of God somehow even though you're delusional? even though you're deceived, even though you're self-righteous, do you think you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise 
the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. That's the intent of God's goodness and love, is that people would change their mind about trusting in themselves. They would recognize that they have a problem. They would have that conclusion that we've touched on jokingly. Houston, we have a problem. Now, what's God's solution to that problem? He said, God is going to have to do for man what man could not do for himself. But instead of coming to that point of changed thinking, verse 5, what do they do instead? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What you have coming instead, in fact, is God's wrath and judgment because you've rejected. The conclusion ultimately is going to be because you've rejected the salvation that he offers through faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone through the finished work on Calvary. Let's break down these five verses a little bit more. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, I want to remind you of this, and we kind of covered this at length, but don't lose track of what Paul is building toward here. He's setting the stage for a conclusion. And these are the conclusions he's setting the stage for by the time you've gotten through chapter 3, verse 20. Paul's in the middle of an argument that started in chapter 118. We read that. It's going to take us all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, and the argument is twofold. The first part of the argument is all mankind is guilty without excuse and deserving of God's judgment. Number one. Second argument is nobody in the world, man, woman, or child, has the righteousness needed to get to heaven through their own merit. You could have continued there. That's what he wants us to conclude. So now as we come into this first verse, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Just because you're self-righteous doesn't mean you're any better off than anyone else. You have an equal need for the rescue that God offers. He's going to say the same thing about the religious man. Just because you're so religious doesn't mean that you're in any better standing than anyone else or that you have any less of a need for the redemption of Jesus Christ than every man, woman, and child on planet earth. That's the conclusion. If you're here and you're saying, man, I never take anything away from the message, write that down quick. That's the thing to take away. That's what Paul is arguing for. Now you have this phrase here, you are inexcusable. Just means you're without excuse. You have no defense. Now this represents the primary conclusion and point of this whole section running through verse 16. Obviously we won't get there today, but Lord willing, we'll get through the rest of that section next week. Now in its In itself, this is a continuation of the intended conclusion of chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, which was that everybody stands guilty. Paul makes this section very personal. I want you to see this. You see how he's gone from talking in the plural? He's now not talking about they, them, and those. He's now talking about you. He's making this very personal to the reader. You are inexcusable, this person that is self-righteous. Now, that would be true whether he was speaking to self-righteous moral unbelievers or if he was talking to self-righteous moral believers. You have no room to judge. 
You can make judgments, but you're not to judge others remembering the brokenness within yourself, remembering that you're a work in progress. Now, who is Paul addressing here? Whoever you are who judge. Paul anticipates the presence of self-righteous people in his audience who saw everyone but themselves in the descriptions of, again, chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. People who could read through all of that and not admit that they gossip, not admit that they've disobeyed the parents, not admit that they're proud, not admit that they boast, not admit that they're undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful at times. While the truth is all men are guilty of all of those things, let alone the rest of it, which is being overtly unrighteous, sexually immoral, wicked, just referring to anything that's doing anything that's evil. Well, God defines evil as anything that's opposed to him and his truth. That's, I, I keep saying it, but I hope it's sinking in. That's the problem with us having this perspective that the world is evil and people are evil, but not seeing ourselves in that. Anyone who's rebelling against God, not accepting God's standards of what is right, acting in ways that are incompatible with his spirit's desire to work in our lives, we're participating in, contributing to this overt rejection and rebellion of God. We're effectively, though we're positionally, we're born and identified in the family of God. We're in Christ. We're clothed in all righteousness positionally. Practically, it's as if we're still playing for the wrong team. You see that, right? That the believer has been translated. They've been moved and passed from death to life. They've gone from lost to found. They've gone from being in Adam to being in Christ, and that's permanent. That's a positional standing that they have in Christ. So they've been made to be a new creation. They've been given a new spirit, God's spirit, the new nature. They've been clothed, in a sense, in new clothes. But does that mean that we automatically live in light of, practically, experientially, we live in light of? The position that we have in Christ? The exalted position that we have in Christ? Well, no. We have a tendency to forget who we are in Christ positionally and practically live like we're still lost. Now, does that mean we were never God's child? No. We're God's confused child in those moments who's now living like he's something he's not. Can you have been freed from slavery and still live like you're a slave? Yes. Can you still believe and be convicted, convinced at times and deceived at times into believing that you're under the control of something that you're not anymore? Remember when we talked about having been under the control of the drill instructor in boot camp? Remember that? Well, when you're in boot camp, you're under the bondage to the control of the, boot, the drill instructor and he says, drop and give me 20. You drop and give him 20. You have no say in that. But when you're out of the army and you come across this drill instructor that you had formerly been in bondage to and he says, drop and give me 20, will you still maybe feel a pull? You feel this pull to drop and give him 20? Yeah, because you were under bondage, under the thumb of that drill instructor for so long. But now that you've been freed from that, you're no longer in the army, you're no longer under his control, what can you rightfully say to him? Sorry, sir. <laughs> no, thank you. 
That's what you could say. So why go back to wearing these clothes that do not even describe you anymore? They're not who you are anymore. But as you're thinking about that, that can occur. So we think at, at this phrase, whoever you are who is judging, it's these people that are thinking that they're better than they are. They're self, they are, they're self-righteous. So Paul is addressing now the moral sinner here. While in the previous section he was addressing the immoral sinner, and as I mentioned, the next section will address the religious sinner, but he's addressing sinners and trying to convince them that they're all guilty. Now why is this type of man just as guilty as the overtly immoral man described in chapter 1, verses 24 through 32? What does Paul have to say about it? Well, he says, for you who judge, the reason you're just as guilty is you practice the same things. How ironic. How ironic. The self-righteous moral sinner is actually disgusted by the overt or the celebrated immorality that's described in verses 24 through 32, but he still practices or does the same unrighteous things. God is saying this, not me. If you somehow are looking at those lists there at the end of chapter 1 and you're saying, I don't do any of those things, you're deceived because God is saying you do do those things. Now, all of those things, maybe not each and every one at the same time, but in different ways, you do those things. Let's look at the phrase, haters of God. You say, I never hate God. Aren't you despising and hating God while you're rejecting God and doing your own thing and rebelling against him, practically speaking? I'm not saying positionally you're hating God, but are, are you practically hating God, warring against him, undermining his purposes while you're having that mindset? Yeah, the truth is that you are. And that's the idea here of how ironic this is. This self-righteous moral person is indignant about seeing other people's overt immorality, but that person that's thinking that way is still doing those things. This is the definition of self-righteous, having this unfounded perception of moral, moral superiority. It's unfounded because they still have their own problems, is the idea. You think you're so much better than these people, but you do the same exact things. And here's one example of that. Nobody has ever criticized another for lying without having, sometime or other, been guilty of shading the truth themselves. Think about that. You're condemning somebody else for their behavior. Now ask yourself, it's in the example here, lying. You're telling me that you never shade the truth, omit part of the truth? We call those lies of omission. You're saying you don't do that? Get out of here. Not literally, stay here and be convinced that you're wrong. <laughs> now, as a result, in whatever you judge another, it says, you condemn yourself. And this is pretty straightforward and logical. This one author writes, the conscience that makes you aware of imperfection in another finds written on itself the guilt of its own imperfection. I'll say that again. The conscience that makes you aware of imperfection in another finds written on itself the guilt of its own imperfection. In whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself because you're guilty. See, I, I want to touch on, to judge is not wrong in and of itself. I mentioned that. To judge just means to separate, to distinguish, to discriminate between good and evil. That's a good thing, to make judgments about what's right and wrong. The Bible reveals much of that. The problem is being judgmental and looking down at or condemning others while overlooking your own flaws and sinfulness. 
The self-righteous man artificially establishes his own standard of right and wrong, and that's an ever-fluctuating standard, a standard of good and evil. That's what the self-righteous man does, artificially establishes his own standard and then uses that flawed standard to determine his own righteousness and condemn others. That's what the self-righteous man does. But what Paul is saying is that you're actually condemning yourself with that mentality because if you were actually honest, you would see that you are guilty as well. You see, careful consideration of the comprehensive nature of various expressions of ungodliness and unrighteousness from that section in chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, it already demands this conclusion. If you were being intellectually honest, if you're being honest with yourself, you would already know that you're guilty. So it's somewhat ridiculous that Paul needs to keep going all the way through chapter 3, verse 20 with his argument regarding the universal guilt and condemnation brought about by sin. It should, have, it should have been able to end right with verse 32 of chapter 1. Everyone should have read that and said, I'm guilty. I deserve God's condemnation. I don't have the righteousness that I need. I lack the righteousness that I need. I'm going to have to get that righteousness from somewhere else because I don't have the righteousness that God demands. That should have been the conclusion already, but we continue on because of this mentality that always finds a way to think that we're morally superior or we're better off than we actually are. So you get to verse 2 here, but we know. So this is what a person thinks, that they can judge another even though they themselves are condemning themselves by that same judgment. And this is a continuation of that thought, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And he just got done saying, you, the one who's judging another, you self-righteous man, you're guilty of the same things. And we know that God's judgment is according to those who are guilty, including you. And it represents a straightforward summary of the ramifications of man's sinfulness. See, man is universally guilty and deserves God's judgment and condemnation. Those are the principles that Paul is trying to bring to the surface. So we see here that God's judgment is the unavoidable byproduct of God's justice. The judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. God cannot overlook sin. God cannot be just and just excuse sin. Sin requires that there be a satisfactory payment to atone for that sinfulness in order for God to be fair and just and holy and righteous. He couldn't just overlook it. See, God's attributes, they must function in harmony with each other. And then I want you to look at another takeaway from this verse is that God's standard is what? The judgment of God is according to truth. God's standard to judge against, instead of finding this artificially low standard to compare yourself to and come across with this self-righteousness that frankly many in the church are accused of having by those in the community that want nothing to do with church. Self-righteous, judgmental, hypocritical, Instead of having this artificial standard, the standard to compare yourself to and remember how much you need God, how much you need Him to work in your life, how much you need Him to change your thinking, to change you from the inside out, to transform you. The reminder of that is seeing your own brokenness. S judging by the standard of truth, not judging by a standard of delusion or deceived perception, but a standard of truth. 
That's why we find our standard of truth in God's word. Now, the third verse here is, and do you think this, O man, kind of continuing this thought, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, so that's, again, just describing the problem that was explained in chapter, in in verse one of chapter two. You think that you're sinless. You you have this self-righteous mentality. You think that you don't stink, but in fact, you do. You're practicing these same things. Now, do you think that having been deceived and delusional about that, do you think you're somehow going to escape the judgment of God? And this is a rhetorical question. The answer is intended to be obvious. Paul's just driving home his point. The idea here is you see how illogical the way you've been thinking is, right? You see that, right? You understand that as you hear this truth being taught, it's sinking in, right? That's what Paul's trying to say there. You're grasping this, don't you? Aren't you seeing this? It is easy to understand this deceived mentality from a human perspective. Like Paul is saying, how could you think this way? How, how could you have this inflated view of yourself? How could you not see your own brokenness? How could you have this standard that you've come up with where you're comparing yourself to the wrong standard? How could you do that? Well, and the answer is because it comes naturally. Because it comes naturally. I want you to consider this story from the Word of God. You see, the nature of deception is such that one doesn't recognize it in himself. Compared to a low enough standard, anyone can come away looking pretty good. And you say, where would be an example of that? I just want to summarize an example of that that most of you are probably familiar with. And that's the example of Nathan coming to David after David sinned with Bathsheba and after David offered up Uriah to be effectively murdered by putting him in the front lines of the battle because he wanted his wife. And those that think sinful people can't be saved, they're missing the whole point of the Bible. That's the only kind of people there are. People who think believers never sin anymore, they're missing the whole point of the Bible, which is about believers who respond to the message of salvation, but then don't trust God enough to have him lead and direct their lives. And so they keep then doing things that are incompatible with their new position as being in Christ. Though they're God's child, they keep on living like they're something else. And example after example after example. That's why I have no tolerance for or any, any room for those that have this teaching that says, in order to prove that you're genuinely saved, your life has to look a certain way. And you'd say, there's too many examples in the Bible about people who should have known better, had been saved out of that bondage that they were in to sin, but they kept, kept on sinning. They kept on doing horrible and despicable things. The truth is that we're capable of it. It's just that we don't have to live that way anymore. We've been given freedom, as Paul will get to in chapter 8 of Romans, where he says, for, for we know that the law of the spirit and life and, God, and godliness has given us freedom from the law of sin and death. We're not under bondage to sin anymore. 
But now back to our example of David. So David, the man who said to be the man after God's own heart, the man who had tremendous problems in his own home, a man who had much failure in his life, a man who did not follow through with God's plans for his life over and over again, though at times he did when he was trusting the Lord. Now in this story, as it relates to what occurred there, Nathan comes to David. And, and he's setting David up because this is just an example of how self-deceived we can be. And so Nathan says to David, judge this scenario. He's going to give him then this scenario. Judge this scenario. And what is this scenario? He says, a man with abundance, an abundance of lambs, many, many lambs, a man though who has a lot, a man of abundance, steals or takes away, robs, the one single lamb that another man has. So that's the scenario. And Nathan says to David, what do you think should be done to that man? And David says, that man deserves to die. That man deserves to die. And what does Nathan say to David? You are that man. You are that man. See, that's the nature of self-righteousness. It's tied to deception. You've convinced yourself of an alternate reality that's not true. You have a perception of things that's not based on God's truth. You can see it in others, but you don't see it in yourself. You know what? Somebody... Somebody asked me this. They, they said, this is, a, this is a good thing. They said, why is, why is this church so gracious? I said, that's news to me. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that. That was a joke. Come on. Don't, don't all of you go home offended. Just some of you. I can only offend so many per, per week. Why is the church so gracious? And they were comparing it to another church that they had some experience with where they thought everybody was kind of always trying to judge their life and point out their flaws and failures without accepting that everybody's battling through similar things. But that was their perspective. And I thought about it for a second. I thought, what would make this church gracious? You know, what wouldn't make this church gracious? Self-righteousness. Thinking that we've, we're so much better than everyone else. But you know what would lend itself is humility. What would lend itself to being gracious with others is humility. What would oppose that is pride. What would lend itself to that is humility. And I said, I think one of the reasons that, that might be true, though this may not be the exact answer, one of the reasons that might be true is that this church has been going on for quite a long time, many decades. And many of the people here have been coming out for quite, quite a long time. And I said, I think what happens is that as people age and as they live life and they, they walk this walk of faith, they see how easy it is to stumble. They see how easy it is to trip and fall on your face and get all bruised up. To have tattered garments. They see it in their own life. They see it in their, the lives of their relatives. They see it in the lives of their children that were raised in this church. They see them going off the rails in all different kinds of directions. They see how easy it is to have this position in Christ and yet not always live like it. 
And so then when you see somebody else falling on their face, having mud in their face, instead of pointing out their failure or dwelling on their failure, you try to lift them up and point them back to Jesus Christ and how much he loves them, how he's provided victory for them, how he has given them the strength to move forward. Instead of focusing on the speck in their eye while we have beams in our own eye, we're gracious. But you know what would stop us from being known that way? is when we become a church of arrogant, prideful, self-righteous folks. Then we just love to sort of celebrate the brokenness of people and gossip about the brokenness of people. We can't wait to go tell the person the juicy little gossip that we heard about so-and-so. That's pride, friends. That's what that is. We won't be known for the things we ought to be known for, which is God's grace as it's reflected in and through us. You are that man. And when you remember that, you would have a different perspective. See, the takeaway is here, although a man's case may seem hopeful, when brought before a human court or a human tribunal, man's case is utterly hopeless when brought before the tribunal of God or the courtroom of God and his perfect standard of righteousness. That's the takeaway is, do you think somehow you're going to escape God's judgment? This person who thinks they have this inflated view of themselves? Verse four, or do you despise? The person who's doing that is doing this. They're despising the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering. Instead of celebrating God's goodness, forbearance and long suffering, They're judging other people and being self-righteous. They're not seeing their own need for rescue. They're not seeing their own guilt. They're seeing it in everyone else. So what are they doing? They're despising the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering that was directed toward them and every other person that they're presently judging. It it, it wasn't just them that God was good to or forbearing or long-suffering to. It was you. And God's goodness wasn't supposed to make you continually judge others. God's goodness was supposed to bring you to a point of salvation where you would have a change of thinking about yourself so that you could have a dependence on God's work on your behalf and you could be rescued from the hell you deserve to the heaven you don't. It was the goodness of God that was to lead you to repentance. Now most most people have an incorrect view of repentance. The word It's a Greek word, metanoia. I repeat it often here. It means to change your mind. It doesn't mean to change your life. This isn't about what you can do for God. You were trusting in your relative morality as it related to other people that you were comparing yourself to. But the idea was to see your own guilt so that you could, instead of putting your confidence in your own morality or your self-righteousness, you would put your confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ just like everybody else needs to do. That was the idea of this passage, that you would change your mind about what you had been trusting in and you would put your trust in Jesus Christ. It's not what you're turning away from. In terms of your deeds and your actions and your words, it's about the thinking that's changing. As you're changing your thinking, I'm turning to Jesus Christ. It's not what I'm turning away from. I'm turning to faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. That's the message of this book. That's the message of this whole book, but that's the message of this letter to the Romans. 
the idea here is, are you really going to scorn or consider God's patience to be of little value or concern? Can't you see that God's kindness is intended to turn you to him? You see here that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, not the other way around. Not the other way around. Your repentance doesn't lead you to God. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. See, the, pro- the Bible properly understood always emphasizes God's action on man's behalf. Man mistakenly believes that God's lack of present judgment means he will escape God's future judgment. That's effectively what he's saying here. Are you going to despise God's forbearance and long-suffering, meaning his patience to not judge the world right now? Why is he patient? Because he's not willing that any should perish is what we're told in the book of Peter. God is patient and long-suffering because he doesn't want people to go to hell, including you self-righteous people, and next week, including you religious people, and last week, including you overtly immoral people. That's the idea. See, God's gracious forbearance reflects his desire that man would respond to his love and goodness by accepting the rescue he alone provides through the person and work of his son. That's what the takeaway is intended to be, and it's stated very eloquently here, but that's what he's getting at. Our last verse for this morning, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, your unchanging heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, You think that you're earning God's favor through this false sense of morality, this self-righteousness, but instead you're actually facing God's wrath. When will that be distributed? In the day of wrath, in the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's not a lot here, but but it serves to identify two separate purposes for what follows. It identifies a a contrast to what should have been the response from verse 4. So your response should have been to respond to God's goodness, forbearance and long-suffering by accepting the work of his son, which he'll get to later. I'm filling that in so we know what he's talking about. Instead, what are they doing? They have a hard, unchanging hearts. Hard and unchanging hearts. Now, it also identifies a conclusion in terms of God's evaluation of their righteousness. They do not have the righteousness they need, just like the immoral man does not have the righteousness that they need, just like the religious man does not have the righteousness that they need. How do we know that? Because it says that these individuals, these self-righteous individuals who are relatively moral compared to the wrong standard, that they face God's wrath at the day of judgment. See, instead of turning to God for rescue, they instead responded with hardness, which means stubbornness, and and impenitent, unchanging hearts. They are refusing to change their minds about their sin and need for salvation. That's all mankind's problem. Now, what was the result? Treasuring up or storing for the future for yourself wrath. And it refers to storing up judgment or punishment for the future. Now, when will this delayed judgment be faced? In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now that refers to the great white throne judgment facing all unbelievers where every man will give an account. Every man will be judged. And if they haven't placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, this is a judgment of unbelievers, what is the basis or what is left for them to be judged by? We're gonna get into that in the next verses 
6 through 16. If they're not going to be made righteous as a result of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that was imputed to their account the moment they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now all of a sudden they had the righteousness that they lacked, not because they were right, but because Jesus Christ's righteousness was credited to their sinful account the moment they put their faith in Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. So that righteousness of Jesus was transferred to their negative bank account so their bank account could now be in a right standing with a holy God. Not on the basis of what they had done for God, but on the basis of what God had done for them through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now that person will be judged based on this imputed righteousness. In a sense, God's going to look at them and say, come on in, son, because you're right with me on the basis of having this balanced account of the righteousness of God having been credited to you and all of your sinfulness having been laid on him. Talk about a bad exchange. Jesus gives us his righteousness, takes our unrighteousness, and hung on a cross and died on the Calvary's tree saying, I love you this much as he was bearing your iniquity, your shame, your guilt, your sin in his own body on the tree. And he said, I took all of that sin and I nailed it to the cross. I paid the debt that was owed. I paid that debt in such a fashion that there's nothing left for you to do other than accept by faith what I've already done for you. So that's one basis for being evaluated by God on the basis of faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone and his righteousness having been credited to your account. The only other basis, friends, is that God being a perfectly just God is going to judge you on the basis of your human effort. And so you're going to come up to God, come up to that judgment, and he's going to say, let's put all the cards out there. Let's put all the cards out there. Now, what are you going to lead off with? What are you going to lead off with? Yeah, there was this time I helped this little old lady across the street. There was this one time I didn't shout at my child when they did something wrong. There was this one time that I was sacrificial in my love for my wife. There were these two, two times. Yeah, yeah, what, what, yeah, two times. There was two times that I... The list isn't going to be real long, friends. And then the prosecuting attorney will have his, his turn. The prosecuting attorney will say, there's quite a lot here. I'm going to stick to the highlights. <laughs> do you remember that time? And you remember that time? And do you remember when you did this? And do you remember when you did that? And then the prosecutor is going to say, I rest my case. And the judge is going to have an evaluation. There's only two possible outcomes either declared to be righteous or declared to be unrighteous. And remember that God's perfect stand, God's standard is not somewhat right or somewhat more righteous than other people. God's standard is his own standard of perfect righteousness. And could you theoretically earn your way to heaven? Yeah, if you were perfectly right just as God is perfectly right. But what will be the conclusion of each and every one of those trials? Guilty. 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 Con condemnation, 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 condemnation. And much of the world is going to opt for that way to face their maker through a trial of their works instead of facing their maker on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, you got to be pretty proud, pretty deceived. You got to be pretty delusional to, to opt for option B that you're going to go and be judged according to your works. I hope you see that you're going to want to go there and say, the reason that you can accept me is because I'm nothing. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but am now found. I was blind, and I, am, I can now see grace, meaning God having given me what I don't deserve. I was a wretch. I had nothing to offer you, God, but you gave your only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Can you know right where you sit here today that you're gonna go to heaven when you die? And the answer is yes, if you're not trusting in yourself. If you're putting your faith in the already completed, finished, and satisfactory work of Jesus Christ, Jesus says you're already my child the moment you believe that. You're sealed, you're adopted, I'll never let you go. And if it had nothing to do with you to get saved, then how could it possibly have anything to do with you to stay saved? It couldn't. That wouldn't be grace anymore. So can you lay down at night saying, I know where I'm going. We'll end with these lyrics. I know how the story ends. We will be with you again. You could not say that if you think somehow you're gonna have to do better than other people or somehow your good effort's gonna have to outweigh your bad. You could not say that. You're gonna go to sleep tonight and you're gonna say, when I'm honest in the few moments in my life when I am, when I'm honest, I know that there's nothing good in me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this opportunity to look at how clearly Paul wants to convince people that they have a problem and that the only solution to their problem is the salvation that's offered through faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. Thank you for this time we could spend in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.